Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Guys, it's Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Hey, everyone. It's Dr. Ward. I'm back from visiting exotic places like Temecula. Um, your ER. <laughs> Unless, but not least, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Praz the Sandman swooping through the sky and filling your lungs with magical anesthetic gas. Radio <laughs> I, I, I actually want Praz to come into work one day. As, guys, I can't, I can't uh, work. To, what? <laughs> my my <laughs> anesthetic falcon is out. <laughs> Your anesthetic what now? <laughs> I just figured he'd walk around carrying a big bag of sand and then sprinkle it over the patients and then whack them with it. Off to sleep. Old school. That's you, uh, so, <laughs> no pain, no gain. That's how, that's how no pain. So, Praz, you actually <laughs> share your your moniker on the podcast with two different comic book characters. One, a whole series by Neil Gaiman, uh-huh. and mm-hmm. the other, yep. a famous Spider-Man villain slash frenemy. Yeah, like a anti-hero, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. we'll have to we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. But you guys. It's July, and I yeah. think you all know Ooh. what that means if you followed us for any length of time. It's yeah. time for comic book <laughs> medicine. That's a super villain left too. <laughs> Can you guys? That was pretty good. It was a good villain laugh. I I don't know if all of our listeners can feel the excitement <laughs> through the airwaves, but I can. You say excitement, but you've had to listen to this for, oh, much longer than anyone else here. <laughs> we hear Dr. Josh talk about Comic-Con even way back in May. And- it's kind of like Christmas creep, you know, like the first couple of seasons. It was like, 
you know, around June, or we'd hear about Comic Con, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was like, guys, I just finished Comic Con. We got to put together the next comic book medicine for next July. <laughs> They're not wrong. Yeah. So, for those of you who are unfamiliar, yeah. I'm a great big nerd for comics, and I'm also quite a bit of a nerd for medicine, and we like to combine the two and see where they overlap. So, let's get into it with the first of our yes, comic yes, book yes. medicine things we're going to examine. He's the leader, right? Are any of you familiar yeah. with Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four? Stretchy guy. Yeah. yeah. One of the smartest men in the Marvel Universe with the ability to stretch himself into all sorts of shapes, very rubbery skin. Did you also say he's also the smartest he's one of, guy He's in one the of the smartest universe? in the Marvel yeah. Universe, yeah. Oh, yeah. he doesn't need his stretchy powers then, but well, that's just besides the I point. I mean, <laughs> he knows who some of the other smartest people in the Marvel Universe are. Tony Stark There's more and to them Bruce Banner. So, you know, they've all got things where intelligence is their greatest yeah. asset, but not why they're it's, on the team. Yeah. <laughs> Except for Professor Hulk. Oh, oh, come on now. Professor Hulk is so yeah. cuddly and sweet. Professor Hulk is the new hotness. But yeah. Reed Richards <laughs> of the Fantastic Four, or if you're yes. a Disney fan, Elastigirl from The Incredibles. If you're a Pixar fan, I should say. Um, I think the Fantastic Four have been kind of parodied so many times over. But Josh, you told me that, you know, as much as the movie going audience has not seen a good Fantastic Four so far. It's kind of sad because this is kind of like one of the yeah. first big Marvel it's the superheroes, first right? Ever of comics, the first superhero family. See, that's why we don't know it. I know all my Marvel from movies, yeah. and they have not done. I don't no, think but done Marvel now owns the rights, so no. fingers crossed. Reed Richards and Elastigirl, <laughs> both of them have roughly the same power set. They can stretch, bend, deform, elongate. Uh, for you DC fans, okay, fine. Ralph Dibney, the elongated man, can do the same thing. But I'm a Marvel guy, so that's where we're starting. And can any of you think of any medical Angel. conditions that would give a real-world person an equivalent of some of these powers? Like hyperextendable joints and... Um, well, anyone with stretchy, you know, collagen disease or connective tissue disease sure. would probably have How about... Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Not too far of a stretch, I don't was think Ehlers-Danlos is a Ooh, reach a for yeah. Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've got a few others. There's Marfans is out there. Um, right. And actually, Ehlers-Danlos comes in a few flavors, like type 1, type 2, etc. Um, but yeah, these are all diseases. These are genetic diseases, which... You know, when you get into Fantastic Four, they are genetic mutations induced by cosmic rays. Uh, and so you do have, you know, genetic disorders where the collagen, the stretchy stuff that makes sure that our skin stays nice and taut, uh, that it doesn't function like it should. But I think the biggest issue, Josh, is that, you know, like Reed Richards can stretch all of his tissue, not just his skin, but like muscles and bones and stuff. Um, and Ehlers Danlos, it's really stretchy skin, but they actually have to be really yeah, careful because so they, they can also tear. Where they differ is Reed Richards, you're right, too. can stretch all parts of his body, including his organs, which he can shift around, his skin, his muscles. Yep. Wait, Josh. Yep. What about uh, that too? Ha 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 ha. 
<laughs> Just ask the invisible girls. Well, that, well, that, that is canonical. Is mentioned in the? Is that is that canonical? Oh my god! Are you kidding me? Oh. I was kidding. I mean, you're talking about a comic book company that also, as we've covered That's in like, previous yeah. comic book medicines, that was had thing? Mary Jane die from cancer from radioactive semen. So that was a oh, thing. God. Oh. It's a good thing, Josh. You're not competing in the dating world against uh, real world superheroes because that guy's smart, has <laughs> a stretchable, you know what, <laughs> and as a member I mean, of the Fantastic Four. I mean, I'm not Four. routinely attacked we'll by outer have. space beings and supervillains, but you know that's neither here nor there. So let's talk a little bit about what yeah. Ellers Danlos is, and we'll let you draw the comparisons. So, as we mentioned, it's a collagen disease or connective tissue that normally presents just with skin and joint problems. And the very first description of this syndrome in the literature was in 1901 with a young Spanish man who was able to stretch the skin over his right pec all the way up and to cover the left side of his jaw. Huh, that's a lot of stretch. Yeah. Um, So in 1901, Dr. Ellers described the condition as a hyperelasticity of the skin with a strong tendency to bruising. But in 1908, Dr. Danlos introduced the idea that this condition could represent some kind of pseudotumor of a fiber, of a connective fiber. And in 1934, two doctors who never get any credit, Holm Delisle and Susie, described the condition as Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So they named it, but mm. the first two guys discovered it. exotic. Only they named it after themselves, how different the world would be. Yes, Pomé de Lisuzzi syndrome, PDS. Um, so the diagnosis depends primarily on clinical findings and family history. It's an autosomal dominant disorder, which means if one person in your family has it, they will likely pass that gene on to every single one of their children, but the expression of it may vary from person to person. Conversely, somebody, one of the parents has to have it to be able, otherwise it's automatically excluded, no? Correct. If you don't have either parent with it and it's an autosomal dominant, you cannot inherit. Uh, Well, you can't inherit it, but um, you can, in rare instances, get it because of spontaneous mutation. Such as from cosmic radiation. Uh, Stop it. No, I mean, just because, Only four types of Ehlers-Danlos can be confirmed by biochemical and molecular tests, but humans have 19 different types of collagen. So how do you know which kind of collagen is the one that's affected? The answer is it doesn't really matter, and it's really difficult to precisely diagnose this. So you will have... In most types, the skin's going to be hyperelastic. Maybe not all the way of pulling your chest skin up over your face, but because of this stretchiness, areas where your skin is thinner (laughs) because there's a lot of bone that's sticking out, such as the forehead, the chin, the elbows, the knees, the ankles, will have constant small cuts or lacerations. If you've ever woken up with what we like to refer to in medicine as a UBI or an unexplained beer injury, where you go to bed one night, you wake up the next morning and there's an injury you don't know how it got there, 
That happens to these EDS people all the time. Given the limited oh, wow. healing power of the skin with this condition, it can't really retract like Reed Richards' skin. So you see a lot of scarring or atrophic scars, cigarette paper scars, because they're very thin and wrinkly, like those old-timey rolling papers. Yeah, this is a difficult diagnosis to make. I mean, it's not usually made in... It's, it's probably usually made by geneticists and... You know, the, probably you probably know before you have a kid when you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. You're like, okay, there's a fifty-fifty chance that my so child's going to have it, and usually that th those are diagnosed pretty earlier on, right? The problem is the physiologic expression varies. So if someone in the family has it, then yes, you're going to watch for what kind. But you, but the kind that mutates, because we said there's 19 different types of collagen, so some are better at transmitting their genes down the line than others, even yeah. with this dominance. So certain kinds may actually even appear to skip generations because they're not physiologically expressed. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you do have some where the full expression of, so what you call the phenotype um, doesn't always match up with what you might anticipate in the genotype. So there are some people who grow up and they're just quote unquote bendy. Oh, like that one girl in yoga class who can do all the poses. <laughs> I mean, now you may just be flexible, like over uh, you know training and things like that too. But no, no, no. It's but Taylor Sanders. It's Taylor <laughs> All right. Well, I guess Doctor Ward made the call. Does Ehlers-Danlos um, have any sort of like morphologic thing like Marfan's? Are these people like tall, lanky, and... Um... There's no one specific identifying feature, but there are several okay. trends. And one of them is what I like to call puppy feet. Uh, yeah. So just like, you know, baby puppies will have paws, you know, that they have to grow into that are bigger than their starting bodies... Many parents with many patients with Ehlers Danlos will have this appearance with their hands and their feet being slightly larger than average, um, along with you know this generalized hypermobility of the joints. So they'll have cartoonishly large thumbs or maybe big feet larger than you'd expect to see on a young child. And of course, the physical appearance includes being tall as your growth plates simply push out more and more bone over time instead of stopping at age 18 like they do in most people. Uh, even more interestingly, people with Ehlers-Danlos, even though they're highly susceptible to bruising and bleeding and scarring, they have a much lower statistically noted population. They have much lower incidence of broken bones than the general population. Huh. Higher incidence of... Yeah, because their bones, their bones tend to like kind of bend rather than break. Their joint dislocation becomes much more likely, but broken bones are less common because you can't smash a bone if it moves out of the way. Just like Reed Richards and Elastigirl can shift the placement of their <laughs> internal organs around, well, Ehlers-Danlos kids don't have quite that level of control, but... Perhaps, unfortunately for them, when they are in injuries, the skin is so elastic, it shoves the bones out of the way and fractures are very hard to obtain. That does bring us to the next thing that the comics don't address in these stretchy Ooh, people. Kind of a a lot of them are very klutzy. And that is not intentional. It's not like, oh, well, if you have Ehlers-Danlos, you're just going to be discombobulated. It's because this hypermobility 
gives you a laxity of your ligaments, the the little connective tissue that holds your knee bone to your thigh bone, your thigh bone to your hip bone, and so on and so forth. And that's difficulty in altering, in transmitting muscle force from one muscle to the next. So that's going to alter their gait and make them more likely to fall. They also will have a lot more vision problems as their eyelids droop and cover their eyes or their ocular muscles relax and become much more loose. So Reed Richards may have been the smartest man in the world, but if he truly had <laughs> Ellers Danlos instead of cosmically induced stretchy abilities, yeah, yeah. the poor guy would have had the thickest Coke <laughs> bottle glasses you ever could have seen and would have been tripping all over himself. Sue Storm would have only been the invisible girl because his vision would have been just terrible. Yeah. We should mention um, a couple of the things that, uh, for instance, Dr. Ward, you may see in your ER with Ehlers Danlos. They can have sudden aneurysms of the yeah, uh, aorta, so the the great vessel that you know brings blood everywhere. So you can have aneurysms or dissections of the aorta because the elastic wall is not as strong as it should be. And if they get high blood pressure, the walls can bulge out like a balloon. Well, that Um, that may be specific sometimes, and it's probably more associated with Marfan syndrome. Uh, Marfan syndrome people are always, I actually have seen quite a few Marfan's patients that every time they come in with chest pain, every ED doc just jumps to the conclusion, okay, we have to roll out aortic dissection and they, they end up, <laughs> and you know um, it is. people with marfan syndrome sometimes they come in with chest pain without any life-threatening conditions and yeah, multiple yeah, ct yeah. scans and um and so on and so forth but you're absolutely right it, yes. when uh, when you have marfan syndrome and you do end up with an aortic dissection it's it's uh, it can be devastating there was. So Marfan's is one type, you know, where you, you can have uh, growth and connective tissue disorders. And there is, unfortunately, uh, forms where you have a vascular type of Ehlers-Danlos, um, so where that particular connective tissue just happens. And so you get uh, aneurysms, a- arterial dissection, and pseudo aneurysms as well. So it is one to look out for uh, in some of these other connective tissue disorders. I don't think so with Reed because his elasticity is kind of like it can rebound back to shape. Here's the super cool thing. And one of the topics that we're going to be touching on in more detail a little bit later is the medical applications of superhero uniforms and suits. So the suits of the Fantastic Four as well as the rest of their wardrobe, are made up of unstable molecules attuned to their powers. That's why Johnny's costume doesn't burn when he flames on, Sue's costume turns invisible when she does, and Reed's costume stretches with him. And as they've covered in the comics, the uniforms all have complete data processing and telemetry woven into the material. So there's a constant real-time uplink of everyone's physical condition, as well as their location and current situation. So if Reed starts overstretching and develops an aneurysm, he can be notified by whoever's watching from the tower and quickly pull himself back into shape. Whoa. So there's nothing equivalent in real world medicine just yet, although we do have telemetry suits, nothing that allows you sort of that degree of control and feedback over your body. Although it wouldn't surprise me to see it in the next few years. Now let's move on to the next one. Let's jump away from Marvel for just a moment, and I don't want to neglect some of the other big pop culture 
properties. Amazon is developing a series now that we're all in, you know, Game of Thrones withdrawal. Amazon figured it would be a good time to pull us back into Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't seen a Lord of the Rings movie since the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm, I miss me okay, some Hobbits. So include the uh, Hobbit movies. Yeah. Oh, the Hobbit movies. Oh, <laughs> you made me sad. Bro. That is a, that <laughs> is a, that is a PC stain on the oh, on the the Sandman <laughs> just gave me a nightmare. <laughs> well, actually, we're being too hard. The books were good, but it's the movies were yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. One of the things that was a little bit of a shortcut for J.R.R. Tolkien is. Every he doesn't really spend too much time describing how the different races look aside from the highlights. Elves all have pointy ears, dwarves are short and fat, orcs are all routinely, you know, ugly, but why? Let's let's look at some of the environments they're living in because the enforced segregation of Tolkien's fantasy world really has a bearing on the health of the characters in these novels. And Ward, I believe you are our biggest Lord of the Rings experts. Why don't you take us through where each of the characters tend to live, and we can talk about how that's going to affect their general health. Okay, first of all, I've been uh, I've been Gandalf twice during Halloween, so you know what I'm talking about. You know, one of the villains in the Lord of the Rings, one of the constant villains in Lord of the Rings universe are, are the orcs, right? They're usually on, in movies described as these hunched over kind of depressing-looking, grouchy, ugly-looking things um, that live basically in caves and in um, dark places. Sounds like coal miners. Yeah, right? That's, oh, deep cut. Like take that, Jillian. <laughs> um, uh, but if the canon, okay, if you believe the canon of Lord of the Rings, they orcs were elves once, right? Yeah, they were, yeah, they were, they were kind of turned towards evil or tortured and, tortured and, and kind of beaten and, and just yeah. dark magic uh, forced upon them. But what if, what if they were just elves who worked undesirable jobs, who never got any sun, Aww. who had nutritional deficiencies and had maybe sleep cycle deficiencies and ended up after a few years ended up being looking like orcs. <laughs> okay. For example, okay. For example, you're talking like a cubicle elf. <laughs> or, an, or an ER dog. I used to look like an elf once. Uh, like an ER dog. <laughs> it's true. I can confirm. I used to be Dr. Ward's roommate. He was very, like, you know, uh, high elfish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, four years in the ER, tortured in the uh, in the dark dungeons. and uh, No, no. I would have thought more like a radiologist. <laughs> well, you know, there are all sorts of orcs. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you work a job that that does not allow you to have sunshine and uh, add on a little bit of a sleep sleep de deprivation, you can end up with all sorts of deficiencies, including vitamin D, which is which helps us maintain healthy bones. And lack of vitamin D uh, may end up uh, resulting in bone and back pain, uh, impaired wound healing, depression, hair loss. Some of those orcs definitely need um, <laughs> a wig because they're usually described as all on top, like right, scraggly hair on the side, right? So that could be one of the causes that you go from a you know, traditionally considered uh, attractive-looking elf down to yes. uh, down so, to Gollum, or you know, go ahead. To we're going to talk about Gollum. Gollum. I was going to say Gollum is actually not an orc. He used to be a hobbit. You know, this theme kind of carries through in 
Well, not exactly a hobbit, but like a, a common ancestor of modern hobbits, like a, a little while. That's back. right. That's right. And unlike hobbits who live in nice villages, who, you know, have sunshine and uh, walk through creeks or whatever it is hobbits do, Gollum chose to look, live underground in a cave, obsessed with a ring. And again, yeah, you know, those damn, those nutritional deficiencies, depression and <laughs> lack, lack of sleep. <laughs> you know? Suffering hair loss, oh, are you- riddle bones, possible dementia. Yeah. Sure. And uh, I guess uh, just eating like blind cave fish, right? So he also, he's missing things like vitamin C. That's correct. And when you are uh, not getting your fresh fruits and veggies, um, you can end up even with scurvy. Forest on essentially vegan diets, getting nothing but sunlight and exercise. We've got goblins and orcs who are perhaps descended from these ancient elves but living underground with you know very carnivore based diets and things and the medical journal of australia went to the trouble of doing a whole study about this and they mentioned sun avoidance is a recurring theme among evil characters troll the trolls the party encounters in the very beginning shun the sunlight to avoid petrification and they've been living and they've been living exclusively on a mutton diet so they're strong but stupid. <laughs> uh, you've got the cave-dwelling Gollum to smog, the forces of Sauron living in Mordor. Anyone who's evil in Middle-earth all has a consistent problem. Their diet is short in fresh fruits and vegetables because they are not getting any of that unless they make war. And when's the last time you saw an orc eating a banana? Never. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, That's, that is just not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys do you guys think that smog was so like you know kind of grumpy Ooh. and and taciturn because of gold poisoning gold poisoning huh. yeah like he could have had heavy metal toxicity he could have. i've heard of a lot of metals i'm not as familiar that's, with gold though that's very possible he was also a dragon so his nutritional, I mean, <laughs> his nutritional. yeah yeah it's it's a little more arcane because we don't use gold for therapy a lot but it's it's a lot like some of the other heavy metals uh you can get poisoned by it maybe he bought maybe he bought that gold from an unscrupulous chinese oh. exporter and accidentally got some lead in there so <laughs> <laughs> I looked up a picture of what you would look like if you had uh, if you had scurvy, right? And oh my gosh, it is a it is a golem slash orky looking face. So you would have loose teeth, swollen, spongy, purplish gums, prone to bleeding, uh, bulging right. eyes, bleeding into the skin, bruising. Uh, scaly, dry, and brownish skin. I don't know what brownish, but a uh, very dry hair that curls and breaks off close to the skin. You know, a lot of these features are similar to alcoholics who also lack vitamins to a large degree because they don't eat. Degrees. The hobbits joining ranks That's right. with the Fellowship of the Nine, and they're all holding their own against <laughs> armies of goblins. When push comes to shove, a goblin warrior may be bested by a completely untrained hobbit not because the hobbit's particularly lucky or good in battle, but the goblin has advanced musculoskeletal decay. You can literally just shove them over. So in this in this study from the Medical Journal of Australia, they ranked each of the characters <laughs> from the trilogy Aww. based on... They were scored from sun exposure, 3 to 0, 
So none at all to lots. And diet was scored as one or zero, depending on whether any vitamin D containing item was mentioned. And they were summed to give a score, which was related to how victorious they were in their goals by T-tests. So that's a fun read. But it also brings up, I was also wondering, maybe this involves pernicious anemia as well. So they're not getting sunlight. They're not getting vitamin D. They're becoming scurvy. But they're also getting problems with absorbing other vitamins like B12. So in pernicious anemia, the body doesn't develop enough red blood cells to carry oxygen because the digestive system can't absorb vitamin B12 from the food. Unraveling how this disease was caused was like one of the great medical detective stories of the early 20th century. And in the 1920s, doctors George Whipple, George Minot, and William Murphy showed that feeding a half pound of raw liver daily to patients with pernicious anemia led to a cure within two weeks. So even though we see all these evil races with, you know, what are probably very brittle bones, what we wow. what we get instead is they are fed on diets almost exclusively of awful uh, organ meats and raw things. And mm-hmm. that may be the only reason they can compensate and make up for some of the other issues they lack. Oh, that's really interesting. And so that's why you were saying that, like, you've got, like, the high elves, you know, Valar and stuff, which are, you know, maybe all vegan. And so... And, and, you know, the, as much as we, you know, joke about veganism, people who are vegan, they have to get a source of animal B12 somewhere because really there's no plant sources of B12. There's very little in the environment. Um, so they usually have to take like an artificial supplement in this day and age. And I don't know if elf magic has any like supplemental B12. They might actually be, you know, have all these cool magical powers and look all fair and tall and everything, but they might be all pale because of anemia. Also, the fact that they neglect to mention that the nine or like who found the ring or who Sauron was or any of that could be because vitamin B12 deficiency also affects men. At least the dementia, right? (laughs) (laughs) From the longest lived ones who unfortunately are all vegan. So orcs, orcs and elves, you guys, just equal problems, opposite ends of the spectrum. Better to be a hobbit. Better to be a hobbit. (laughs) We should say that we're kind of guessing on the veganism. I honestly don't know if... Uh... No, no, no. They they absolutely... Elves are definitively vegan in a... Well, Lord, you'd be the better one, but they give out lembus or travel bread. They only serve fruit and nuts. I don't think anywhere in the Lord of the Rings do elves eat meat. Yeah, I've actually never... I don't recall ever seeing elves... No, I mean, did they have cattle or milk, you know? They might have, but they no, didn't eat them. they weren't herders. Oh, maybe yeah. you're, you're right. I've never read anything about I don't recall ever seeing elves or reading about elves eating meat. Oh my gosh, you're right. Vegan elves. Holy cow. I actually, I love this little tidbit and maybe word you can back me up. You're right that a lot of diet isn't covered, but uh, Tolkien did take the time to cover his version of tobacco, which was pipe weed. I never understood if it was weed or if it was tobacco. But I think it's awesome that he was like, ah, yeah, they eat some stuff. Let's talk about this. (laughs) He he dedicated a chapter to it. It's on pipe weed. It's not just tobacco. Yeah. 
Because one at one time, I think uh, Saruman actually made fun of Gandalf, or it was a it was a shade. Yeah. Saruman shaded Gandalf by saying, "You've been smoking too that, much of that halfling <laughs> weed." So it was like the wacky tobacco. Yeah. Why do you think the hobbits were always eating? <laughs> oh my god, that's true. That's why they were always eating. They always had the munchies. Mystery yeah. solved. All Thank right. you, Saruman, for your aid. <laughs> so let's let's leave Middle Earth behind for the moment. But I figured you'd appreciate that, Ward. We can now you can read reread the series with an eye towards how battle plans may have changed with just a few, you know, school lunches. No, I'm just gonna eat some <laughs> eat some vitamin C. And <laughs> not become... Yeah, don't become don't become a yeah. goblin. He's already in order. There you go. We're gonna jump ahead to talking about fashion in the superhero world. So we already talked about the Fantastic Four's specifically designed suits. And you've seen some version of a telemetry suit in the Spider-Man movies, both Homecoming and Far From Home when that comes out, right? It's set up just like Iron Man's suit where it gives him constantly updates, telemetry, a heads-up display. But what do all the masks, capes, and helmets do, right? They're not always chosen just for fashion. And the I think the easiest one to talk about is going to be Bane, as we saw him in The Dark Knight Rises. So, <laughs> Pros, you're a Batman fan. Do you happen to know what Bane's mask was responsible for? Although Wait. I'm making him talk like this, uh, Batman. <laughs> oh, you did the voice. <laughs> that is an excellent voice. <laughs> Batman. I always hope that, like, Bane... You know, you talk like this, Batman. And then, like, they take the mask off, and he'd still talk like this. So, <laughs> like, so, it, was, it wasn't the mask that was muffling him. It was just, uh, just how he talked. Oh, the Bane mask <laughs> is, um... I'm kidding. I always just assumed it was an oxygen mask, or, like, just a space mask. And I assumed it because he had some sort of breathing issue, and that's sort of how he, like, survived in, like, various environments or whatnot. Truth is, it had a much stronger and sinister purpose than what I imagined. Turns out he wasn't always such a bad guy. He developed many of his deformities after an attack while trying to save a girl from um, attackers in a jail. And instead, he got attacked and he was left with severe crippling pain and many fractures and broken bones everywhere. Many people in real life who have similar conditions, not necessarily from trauma, undergo a surgery called a spine fusion. What a spine fusion does is it takes broken bones, joints, um, the pain which comes from movement and rubbing against each other, and it sort of fuses them together so there is less rubbing and friction in, in an attempt to try to remove the pain. Unfortunately, spine surgery itself, even when successful, as was the case with Bain, often leaves people with feeling very severe pain as well because now you have rods and screws and pins all up and down your back. So, um, in, unfortunately, what most spine fusion patients don't have, Bane actually had this mask that he could put over his body that he could inhale um, volatile gases, like the anesthetic gas that Ward inhaled, and it would go into his lungs and help um, take away his pain. And basically, that's how it all started. So there's two different versions of Bane. There's the movie version, which is what Proz has just described. So it's a nonstop anesthetic, it's just so he can fight through, which means he essentially doesn't feel pain, which allows him to accomplish some truly impressive feats. And then there's the super steroid drug in from the comic book version of Bane. 
but they're both essentially meant to dull his senses, allowing him to perform otherwise inhuman feats. He's not the only supervillain or hero who makes use of these kinds of devices. For any of you who have read the horror comic Hack Slash, there is a character, Vlad, who looks like a just terrible villain. Is he a so villain or is he Vlad a, is originally is a suspected hero? of being a serial killer because of his deformities. When And you'd learn the source of those deformities is he's part vampire monster, and that's that's a fun reveal eventually. But that's not the reason he wears this mask. You can see that he's walking around what looks like almost a modified version of a gas mask. Why would somebody oh, yeah. like why would somebody be walking around with a gas mask if there is no active poisons or anything in the air? Well, for Vlad, he suffered from severe asthma and that gas mask became a modified inhaler. Now, we talked about what this looks like in the real world in terms of modified inhalers nobody's walking around with a wearable inhaler as of yet that's for a couple reasons one it's simply not practical and two most people who suffer from asthma don't need a constant flow of a bronchodilator they may need a constant flow of oxygen but that's not normally done through a face mask unless you're in a hospital the longest i've ever put someone on a continuous yeah, nebulizer a i think like two hours right and that's because oxygen that's given at high levels for a long period of time can be toxic in and of itself so you do have to kind of watch yourself in terms of regulating so vlad's mask was actually a modified gas mask that similar to bane's kept little supplies of almost albuterol it, it sounds like in there so he could walk into areas where he would have ordinarily had trouble breathing due to the air being too thin for his underdeveloped lungs. And instead, he could be have a mix of both a nebulizer treatment as well as supplemental oxygen flowing into him. But they never really clarified where the oxygen was coming from outside of, you know, the supplemental oxygen. It was just supposedly built in to the mask. So very, very interesting. But any of these disease, pollution gas filters you see a lot of superheroes who wear things to protect their face and pros i believe we talked a little bit about that in terms of bike masks and cpap helmets yes yes um so with the cpap helmets it's a i haven't really seen these used very widespreadly i think they're probably still being developed to a large degree yes um but I saw these, you showed me a picture of this the other day, and it really looks like a space mask in a big way. You know, like a very clear mask that covers the entire head. Like Mr. Freeze. Yes, exactly. Another uh, Batman villain. So a normal CPAP mask is just like a regular face mask, but it has a very tight seal that goes primarily around the nose and the mouth and delivers a very concentrated pressurized uh, airflow into the nose and mouth specifically. What this CPAP mask is, it takes the same concept, but essentially encloses the entire head within this chamber and applies positive pressure all throughout the head and delivers pressure that way. Just do yourselves a favor, folks. Look it up. It is, it's something else. But here is the moment I've been waiting for. I grew up 
on the 90s cartoon X-Men. All right? You, you all know this cartoon very, very well. And if you don't, I am shocked and appalled. Previously on X-Men. Okay, I don't think I can play anymore without us getting sued. <laughs> but one of the biggest storylines that I remember, other than Dark Phoenix, and we're just not going to talk about Fair that news. one right now, but one of the biggest storylines was about the legacy virus, and that ran through various Marvel comics from 1993 to 2001. Oh. I know I'm probably shouting into the void here, but... Do any of you guys remember the legacy virus in the cartoon? I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't the most avid watcher. I know. It's a shame. Josh, I was 12 at the time. So the legacy virus storyline ran through these comics from 1993 to 2001. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what the legacy virus was. And when I say a little bit, I mean a lot. It ran through. It was a viroid released by Strife. Strife was a terrorist from 2,000 years in the future who got this disease from Apocalypse, who originally got it from Cable. Time travel gets tricky. The legacy virus was okay. a viroid that was created to Wait, so he had kill exclusively mutants. So there were three versions of the legacy virus, each one providing its own different challenge. The very first legacy virus was brought back, we'll call it Legacy 1, was released by Strife who was the evil clone of Cable. So the first strain would seek out mutants. If it infected a human, nothing. They just get a little bit of a cold. Who cares? But if a mutant got it, it would begin immediately inserting junk RNA into the mutant's genes by identifying their X factor, the sequence of genes that gave a mutant his or her superpowers. If it detected the X factor, it would begin inserting introns into the transcription coding which would be triggered after the patient used their powers for the first time. And since most mutants discovered their powers around puberty, this was affecting a lot of younger people or you know, teenagers, early 20s folks, the first time they used their power or the first time after they were exposed and used their power. And the result of this was a major compromise, so disruptive that rendered first their power, their body would be incapable of creating healthy cells so they would lose ability over their powers, then they would lose their powers, then they would die. So their powers would malfunction, and their body couldn't create healthy blood cells. That was the first strain. However, it mutated, as viruses do, and began to cause skin lesions, hmm. fever, cough, and a weakness to other illnesses. Does that sound like a metaphor what? for any other real-world virus to you? Yes. Virus well, in the 1990s, I can imagine yeah, yeah. to HIV. Right. It started off just All right, we're talking about HIV. And eventually yeah. jumped to humans, and it became a crisis that the entire world was put at risk for. Now, in the comics, this ended up... Wait, was it an infinite crisis? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just... <laughs> I think Josh just bit through his microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Josh, it's funny you say that because remember one of the episodes of X Men, it was yeah, almost so they almost drew a 
paralleled from mutant superpowers yes. to people. The X Men have always LGBT been coming a out things for minorities and often yeah, for like the LGBT. Telling your parents you have a superpower. A, a, yeah, especially when they address this legacy virus. So in the comics, it was a very long, as I said, it appeared in various Marvel storylines and titles for about seven, eight years. But in the X-Men cartoon we all know and love, they addressed it in about 30 minutes in an amazing way. Well, 30 minutes over five episodes where Bishop, time-traveling mutant, came back to kill some of the X-Men he thought were would be, would be responsible for the release of the legacy virus. And he wasn't wrong because Beast was infected by a mutant terrorist. And this set off a whole worldwide epidemic that first killed mutants, then jumped to humans, and ultimately would have led to Bishop's future where everyone except for Sentinels and a few other scattered folks were dead. They had to go through it twice in order to prevent this. And the way they finally resolved it in the cartoon was by ins- making sure that instead of Beast being infected... Wolverine was infected because his mutant healing ability created antibodies or to the virus, and they took samples of his blood and used it to develop a cure. That's so neat. That's like HIV. You know, we have people walking around, mutants among us, uh, who are resistant to HIV because they have a mutation in one of the cell surface receptors that HIV uses to invade cells. They did. Um, CCR5. So that's kind of like, you know, the same kind of thing that we've been trying to do is to actually... Oh, no, they, they did it. They did a, they did a bone marrow transplant, they didn't did. they? They did. He's, he's called the Berlin patient. He got a bone marrow transplant actually for leukemia. He had HIV as well. But the bone marrow donor... Had a mutation, happened so, to have a mutation in CCR5, and he just was mutants. treated and for all of his leukemia and cured of HIV all in one go. And all the, you know, as that is the fastest mode of transmission. But Legacy 1 was rapid, attacked general transcription and replication of all cells. So that's that was killing mutants left and right. Legacy 2 was much more in line with HIV. It would still have all the Legacy 1 introns inserted into the mutant power genes, but it also began having skin lesions, fever, cough, weakness, and a much slower nature, which is why several mutants who were infected with Legacy 2 survived for years and years following their initial infection while this was trying to be addressed. And Legacy 3 is the version that mutated and jumped into humans as well, and that's when it became a global crisis. So it was a real fun read. But if you can't get through all those comics, then at least watch the five episodes about the legacy virus in the X-Men cartoon. The other one I'm just going to very briefly touch on is the techno-organic virus. The TO virus was related to legacy. And those of you who are unfamiliar with the TO virus, we can send you to the Deadpool movies because that is what is infecting Cable. He's not a cyborg. Those aren't robot parts built into him. That's his own body that has been converted into technology. Oh, that's why he's kind of like, he's breaking down. The organic virus consumes its host. The converted converted organic parts become tech. They continue to live and function, but they're driven by this virus desire to spread to other life forms. It has no known antidote. So whereas Legacy mimicked more real-world diseases, the TO virus was purely a fantasy disease, but one that was very interestingly thought out. 
it infects its host, it takes over very rapidly, turning the host essentially into a phage that signals to other members of the virus, creating a collective hive mind. So it had two different versions. The original techno-organic virus was sent out as a sentient virus in some ways. It has the ability to reanimate the dead. And it has no it has no known antidote, right? Because you're taking something that's tech. You're just rebooting. So what was coming back was a techno version of a formerly what? living person. So they got a couple mutants resurrected that way who had been formerly killed and turned evil. For those who are living, like Cable, the virus has no known antidote. Once you're infected, that's it. It's a lifelong disease, but it can be held in check by telekinesis and other powers. So that's why Cable is one of the world's most powerful telepaths as part of the Summers family. But all his telekinesis and telepathic abilities are used to simply hold this virus at bay. I feel like having robot parts wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. It can if it takes over your organic brain and you simply become a literal slave to the machine. Uh, okay. So the transmode virus was the mutated version of the techno like, organic. Like an automaton. So instead of converting living... Well, it it oh, also converts terrible. living material <laughs> into technology. Robot leg, I'll take but it. But it's much more virulent and can transmit via skin contact. Although, one, although somebody who has the TO virus can prevent transmission of their virus to others. Mutants actually had resistance to the transmode virus just by virtue of their mutant powers, but it progressed very slowly. So if you were a mutant and you got the techno-organic virus, you're screwed unless you have telekinetic abilities. If you're a mutant and you got the transmode virus, your mutant abilities provided resistance, but a human would be instantly converted. And the reason why this wasn't great, Proz, why you don't want to become all of these technarch infected people is while the virus does give you upgrades, it stops the organic parts of you from functioning because believing they're no longer needed by the machine. The problem is unless it happens all at once, you'll die before being fully transformed. So if you get infected and everything, your heart, your lungs, your stomach, uh, your limbs all become technic, techno organic at the same time, you've got about a 50, 50 shot depending on how well you adjust to the shock. But if you have a heart slowly turning half into a computer and half real, it's not going to be able to compensate for the competing parts. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it's like doing a transplant, but taking out one piece at a time and not accounting for how that's going to affect the body before you slap a new robotic part in. So that's all the the X-Men and and Technic stuff. And now we're going to pivot very, very briefly away from superheroes or at least the Marvel Universe, and I'm going to tell you guys about my favorite, most ridiculous superhero from the DC Universe, and then we're going to bring it into some real world. So, yes, I like Batman. I love reading those comics. I'm The Flash has definitely grown on me, but in terms of who just... I love the concept of this superhero is one of the Green Lanterns. In the Green Lantern comics... There is a lantern in Sector 119, Liesel Pond. Those of you who read DC regularly are already nodding along, but Liesel Pond is a sentient smallpox virus who is a Green Lantern superhero. He's Is he like the size of a, 100, the size of a bacteria? 
Is he? He he is. He is. So he's a super intelligent smallpox virus who is not allowed to participate in meetings of the Green Lantern Corps for obvious reasons. He's sent on biological missions where other lanterns can't go. Good luck playing that, Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, is you know how in most comics, the hero and the villain are created with roughly the same power Mm -hmm. set, but opposed, right? So you have a super intelligent smallpox virus working for the good of humanity in a sector of space with all the powers of imagination that a Green Lantern gives you. And his biggest rival is Despotelis, another sentient virus who was created in a medical lab trying to create a biological weapon. And I don't think they ever actually say what kind of virus Despotelis is, but his ability is he can create non-sentient copies of himself, allowing it to spread... And it can also destroy these copies, leaving no trace of itself in any of its victims. And it's a yellow lantern. Yellow lanterns work on fear and intimidation. So since this virus is able to infect anyone at will and kill them in minutes, he's probably able to instill pretty great fear. Wow. So here, here's the issue that I have with this. Yeah, be scared of that. Um, if you're a sentient, so I shouldn't say sentient, right? It's if you had, if you're an intelligent virus, right? If you're a thinking, uh, living thing, um, but you're just like a single virion. The problem is viruses can't really do anything when they're singlets, right? When they have to be able to, you know, if if you're performing uh, biological processes, um, you know, you have to be able to divide um, rapidly. You have to be able to lice open cells or you know, that's a lytic cycle or, you know, establish latency within cells, non-lytic cycle. Um, So there has to be copies and copies and copies of virus, not just a single virion. One virion can't really do anything. Unless he has the power of a green lantern. Uh, I mean, so essentially, it's a it's a tiny living thing. Oh, well, so yeah. Cute. If he's not going to divide, he's not going to actually not divide. He's not going to multiply himself or multiply the genetic material and propagate. Then there's no way to cause infection. Well, the reason I bring those up is because I just like them. <laughs> but let's talk very briefly about the upcoming Batman movie and how this ties into bacteria. So the next Batman movie starring Batson is going to focus... (laughs) Oh, the vampire guy. Sure, yeah. Is going to focus on Batman's detective abilities rather than his punch-and-kick and and Olympic athlete abilities. Hmm. So we're going to spend this Batman and Green Lantern story talking about crime-fighting bacteria in the real world. Because stains at crime scenes can be pretty hard to identify, but now... Ooh, and gross... (laughs) True. But now a unique combination of bacteria may help. In a crime scene, most CSI folks use luminol. It's a spray that can reveal blood spots. And when it's sprayed evenly across an area, trace amounts of an activating factor like the iron and hemoglobin make luminol emit a blue glow that can be seen in a darkened room. It lasts about 30 seconds, but if you notice it, you just spritz a little bit more luminol, and you can document the effect with a long exposure photograph. 
Now, the problem is luminol is not a definitive test to find stains at crime scenes because it can cross-react with other substances, including household bleach, feces, and horseradish. Uh, of those three, I'm guessing that criminals prefer to use bleach to clean crime scenes because not everybody carries horseradish and who wants to smear shit just to hide your tracks at a crime? Unless they've been having California so, rolls, then you can just put some, uh, some of that give a much stronger on reaction with dried and decomposed blood than with fresh blood. So crime scene investigators have to apply this very evenly to avoid misleading results because if you spray too much on something, it's going to light up real fast and you'll think the blood is older. That could affect your timeline of the crime. Uh, the intensity of the glow doesn't indicate the amount of blood, just the distribution of amounts in the area. Yeah, that it's pre and it's not going to work forever because this is like an enzymatic reaction. Um, so when you run out of substrate, you know, the, the glow will go away, but you know, it, it, it'll last long enough for you to see the glow and, and be able to say exactly now, what it is. We've talked a lot about, we've talked a lot about microbiomes in a lot of our journal clubs. Yay! Different parts of the body have very distinctive communities of bacteria, viruses, and fungi. So this investigator, Aurora and her colleagues have decided to investigate whether microbes in small traces of body fluids can persist in a room for at least 30 days, which is a lot longer than bloodstains last, which could lead to new ways to determine if crime scene stains are, one, fresh, and also if they're blood, feces, or vaginal or seminal fluid. Because each of those kinds of liquids has its own collection of bacteria that you can find in it. So the team took multiple samples of blood, menstrual blood, semen, vaginal fluid, saliva, and skin, and they swabbed all these fluids to see if their microbial mix would still be distinguishable after being exposed to the air and the elements for a month. First. After a month sitting out on a high shelf in a frequently used room in their lab open to the sun, which so it could get some sunlight, and they analyzed the genetic material of the swabs at the beginning and the end of the month. So the blood sample didn't really give them any data because most of the time, blood shouldn't have bacteria. But the team also couldn't tell the difference between vaginal fluid and menstrual blood, but they could very easily tell whether, it came, whether bacteria came from the intestines, the genitals, or the skin based on what bacteria were growing. So the, this was from UCSD and the University of Illinois or Chicago, and here's where they took this to the next step. So first, the team showed that, yes, you can, in fact, differentiate between different microbiomes or organ systems on their bacteria alone based on swabs. Now they needed to see if this could be used in crime scenes. So the researchers set up mock burglaries in 10 different homes. We need you to break in. And this is, this is what the researchers were told. Imagine being this grad student. Before and after the burglary took place, the scientists took samples from various surfaces in each home. They also sampled the hands and noses of homeowners and burglars. Then they set grad students loose and said, burgle these homes, do, you know, search around, move stuff about, and then try and, you know, place it back so we can see what's going on. And they had to sneeze or cut themselves or do other things. So these people were basically told, move okay. around the home, touch things. You know, occasionally want you to leave either saliva okay. or skin um, 
or sprinkle, you know, some of previously sampled blood. So the first study led by Dr. Rob Knight of the University of California, California, San Diego, examined whether the sequence in which surfaces are touched, along with the number of times they're touched, influences how easy it is to detect their microbiome. And it also looked at whether you can recover somebody's microbial signature from an object that had been touched by multiple people and how long they last on a surface. And finally, they collected, after these mock burglaries, they were able to identify that before and after the burglary, they could identify that somebody who was not the homeowner had been in the home and narrow it down to a specific individual from a sample selection. They then took this out into the field at the University of San Diego, Chicago, Illinois, and researchers collected samples from deceased individuals in crime scenes and later took samples from the bodies at the morgue to see if those microbial signatures changed after death, and they did not. So now CSI has gained crime-fighting bacteria. Wow, or at least detecting bacteria. These are very specific, it looks like. Yes. Yeah, so the problem is you still have to have the sample of the microbiome. So without being able to better identify, it's going to be real hard to create a database of criminals based on gut bacteria. But the fact that you can start building up this database and identifying what stains or things come from somebody if you already have a suspect in custody versus a victim, this is going to lead to a lot of very interesting breakthroughs. I think this is more of a proof of concept at this time, right? Because that, that's, I can't imagine having just touched a table and then you do a little swab and being able to identify kind of like a fingerprint down to an individual and say, hey, you know what? This sample of bacteria exactly matches your skin. Well, you're right in that it's a more of a pilot study. These took place only in December of 2018, or at least that's when the paper came out. But if they can do that, that'd be amazing, yeah. So they captured genetic signatures by swabbing and extracting DNA from bacteria in each of the samples, and then sequenced the RNA so comparisons could be made between bacteria from different samples. Ooh. So... If I were a burglar nowadays, I'd have to, you know how they used to just wipe off your fingerprint? Now I have mm-hmm. to like Purell the, any surface I touch. Wipe off the fingerprint, Purell, Febreze. The scientists who had to burgle the homes, they were told to touch as many random surfaces as they like and sprinkle various fluids that they were given. And one of them was wearing nitrile gloves and the other wasn't wearing gloves at all. So they were trying to play smart burglar and dumb burglar. And were they able to catch the smart burglar? Samples could be traced to an individual on both cases. So the gloves did not protect. Um, All right. I'm packing my Purell next time I break into someone's house. And baby wipes and toilet cleaner. Yeah, that's right. So we'll have to see where this goes. But I thought that that was a great leap from something you'd only expect in comic books to the real world. And that is it for... Well, hold on, hold on, Josh. Let me put one twist on this. Because I think this is important. You can try one thing rather than doing your Purell. Right. Not leaving your semen or vaginal fluids uh, on the bed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, you can probably actually take a, a single dose of a broad spectrum antibiotic. And that would probably be enough. If they didn't have a prior like microbiome signature from you, that would probably be enough to disrupt your microbiome for a few months at a time. Um, if you took a, you know, a single dose of a a broad spectrum antibiotic, but the other thing, Josh, 
this isn't so much like crime-fighting bacteria. These are snitches, man. And snitches <laughs> get microscopic right. stitches. <laughs> Drop a penicillin on their ass. Can you imagine yeah. a criminal <laughs> yeah. saying to himself, I'll teach me, and just swallowing, you know, some cef- some Keflex? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and kill, you know... You know, ten times more cells than human cells because you know your microbiome is so much a part of you. Yeah, um, antibiotic cosmic radiation and turn into superbugs. There's your origin story. An ordinary bacteria left on a countertop by a burglar was exposed to ionizing radiation and gained sentience. Now he seeks out criminals across the land, helping to identify them through their unique microbiome signatures. He is. Go ahead. What's your name? Superbug. Super Orion. Superbug, the bug that citizens should not fear. So that's it for comic book medicine. Now, it's been a while since we've done a Just the Tip, and Dr. Ward, you have moved recently to a place that is going to be very convenient for this episode's Just the Tip. So uh, why don't you take us through it? That's right. I recently moved to sunny Southern California in San Diego, where the Comic-Con will be held and has been held annually. For 50 years, by the way. Um, It's the 50th 50th anniversary (laughs) of San Diego Comic-Con. It gets quite festive when Comic-Con comes to town, um, especially in the gas lamp quarter. But I want you to take... Yeah, out of gas lamp and take it to uh, a local secret spot where all local San Diegans go to Ooh. get some sunshine and uh, fresh air. And that is uh, Black's Beach. So Black's Beach is a stretch of beach along uh, the shores of La Jolla, northern shores of La Jolla. And it's it's beautiful it's, because it's right on the cliffs. So you'll see these dramatic sea cliffs with uh, local Tory pines that grow on these these cliffs so you'll see cliffs trees and a just a gorgeous pristine beach um they've done a great job of limiting developments on the beach so you will not be seeing you know houses gas stations or whatever you know right on the beach it's just pure nature now just be warned the northern part of black's beach is a an official nude beach so nudists We'll be walking around, uh, but generally, it, you know, it's it's on the northern side of the beach, and the southern side of the beach is usually uh, frequently visited by students at UCSD. That's right across the street. So, if you are in for some sunshine, sea breeze, and you know, just to get away from the crowd I at Comic Con, go to Black's Beach for over ten years, and I had no clue you guys had a new nice. beach down there. <laughs> it's gone fishing down you're, there and it's gone you're throwing out it. hooks while <laughs> nude good <laughs> god lord I, <laughs> that's a brave yeah. soul right there. i'm throwing out hooks <laughs> while others are nude and that's just as dangerous when i'm when i'm whipping out yeah those, i've seen you cast these uh, treble hooks that, that lord does not discriminate whether, whether your clothes or not you're, you're taking away the protective layer that it Our, may or may not latch onto. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yep. Okay. Enjoy it. Go to Black's Beach. Have a good time. Enjoy the sun. The, the water is just pristine. It is beautiful. And especially at sunset, that that magic hour hits those cliffs, hits that that those uh, Tory Pines on top of the cliffs. It is just magical. All right. Yeah, so before not, we sign you know. off, I'm going to ask my <laughs> hosts to take one of their abilities, one of their natural skills that they already have, and tell me, how would they parlay that into their own superhero identity? So what's your name? 
and your power based on something you can already do, but you can, you know, superize it. I think I would be um, the sure. basset hound because I have a really good sense of smell. Like I, I you know, I can smell like diabetic ketoacidosis <laughs> sometimes on patients. And uh, no, I, I, that, that reactively really is a thing. Some people can't smell it and some people can't. Um, yeah. So I would be the basset hound and I would be able to sniff out anything that happened in a room. Oh, like that, that luminol thing or like that biome thing, like a week <laughs> before. All right. Other than being the Sandman. Up to you, is, Sandman. I think in and of itself a pretty awesome uh, superhero name. Uh, if I had to create an alter ego, I would probably <laughs> call myself um, the monk. One of the things you learn doing anesthesiology, um, you face a lot of very emergent, very rapidly changing situations. And you really develop a tendency to remain stoic and calm throughout these, um, throughout these events that maybe tend to shake other people around you. You know, I think this is something that could come in handy during any crisis whether it be um, learning a spasm or cosmic radiation or the end of the world. Uh, mine's a little more squishy. Whenever uh, a patient or especially a patient's parent needs some convincing, yeah, I just talk to them a little bit. And it's a little bit of empathy and niceness. And so I, I have to be careful because this oh. power can be used Sounds towards good or evil. Um, but I think oh. I would be one of the most powerful empath, the convincinator. I, I would be able to, just with some kind words and some sweet talk, convincinate uh, people to, you know, come around to a reasonable, rational view and to, to consider all the facts and to leave behind a lot of their faulty and kind of uninformed intentions. But I, I realize if I if I bend it a little too much to, to, to evil and I don't stay informed and correct in, in my knowledge base, that I could definitely, you know, kind of convince them in the wrong direction. So I, I would I have you know that that kind of with great power comes great responsibility of type the of thing. Caster, short for the podcaster, able yeah. Able to send out information gained from my team far and wide, <laughs> taking over local radio waves or any electronic yeah. casting device where you're mm. just walking down the street and all of a sudden you get a string yeah. of could be anything from useful mm. information to utterly yeah. irrelevant trivia and facts. And and I would probably right. have at least one <laughs> story arc where I yeah. use this power for evil. Here's the... Okay, and uh, here's a twist on this. Every superhero has a weakness. Superman has... Right. Now, what is your superhero's super weakness? Whenever the superhero faces adversity, it's usually someone who's kind of just like them, but with opposite intentions. So, like, (laughs) willful ignorance. And that's that's a very powerful, pervasive thing. Like, I don't know and I don't want to know, you know, that kind of, and I'd crumble. I'd just like kind of, oh, and it'd be like, I don't care what, you know, 99% of, you know, the data has to say. And I was like, the feelings. well, it's my feeling that, and I just, oh, 
Oh, the feelings. Oh, no. <laughs> the feelings. Yeah. Hey, okay, so those of you who've traveled with me know this, that I have this weakness. Uh, mine is a good nap. If you show me... <laughs> oh, the- <laughs> If you show me a place to take a good nap, I'm like, you know what? I don't care if you have the coolest thing in sight. I don't care if the All right, I don't care so if you have an awesome site in Africa uh, that you feelings. haven't seen. I'm going to take a nap. A person that gets in the way of me keeping my calm and keeping my rational thoughts is any anesthesiologist, arch nemesis, the surgeon. Any <laughs> sense of calmness, <laughs> he cuts through the calm. He cuts, he no! <laughs> the patient dump the deadliest move known to man forget you know the the secret the secret move that they have which is the finger point that's it for this year's comic <laughs> book medicine as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback <laughs> if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that will be in the show notes along with whatever resources i used in researching this episode this show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my super friends and our theme music is composed by rachel leisure That's it for Season 5 of Travel Medicine Podcast. Stay tuned to the Patreon feed as well as this channel as we'll release one or two things over the summer. Otherwise, we'll be back in October with our other favorite episode yearly, the Halloween episodes. So, until next fall, you guys, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 